I'm very annoyed because my younger brother has been vacuuming his room and it's like fucking 9.30. He has been vacuuming since 9.30. Welcome to Hidden Among Us. Hi! Episode 20! Indeed, it's 20. 2020. 2020. It's a bad number. <laughs> huh? Why is 20 a bad number? No, I think because like 2020. Oh, we don't talk about 2020. We only talk about episode <laughs> That's 20. That's taboo. 2020 doesn't exist. Yes. 2020 doesn't exist. 2020 is just one long month. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not over yet. Oh my god, I saw this tweet that was like, wasn't yesterday just October 2nd? And I, I was like, oh shit, yeah. Yeah. Like, no. October went by, like the first week went by so quickly. It's already the middle of October. <laughs> yeah, like, where did the days go? I don't know. Mm-hmm. November is coming soon. Yeah, oh, let's not even... Oh my god. Uh, everything is due. Yeah, I have two assignments due next week. I'm not looking forward, honestly. Same, I have two assignments due next week. No, I have four. Oh, okay. I have two essays and two presentations. Whoever thought this was legal, honestly. Tehran, who has upcoming deadlines, we wish you all the best. You can do it. Believe in yourselves. Maybe stock up on coffee. Yeah. Green tea if you want a healthy alternative. Also, I recently bought oat milk. Because like... And this is the same, the same brand Starbucks uses. And I really love the Starbucks one. But like this oat milk does not taste good. I'm very confused. The way Am I doing something wrong? Wait. Yeah, maybe it's the way I'm making my drink. But it's the same one that's used in Starbucks. And I just got like an oat milk latte this evening. And like, it tastes so good. But when I use the oat milk at home, it tastes terrible. So I don't understand what, what I'm doing wrong. Maybe it's the way you use it. Did I buy the wrong version? Yeah, I don't... Hmm, maybe. I mean, how are you even using it anyways? Like, I, I just use it as a milk replacement. Ooh, okay. As in, is it because it's cuddling or the taste is not good? Like, it's not... Okay, so when I drink oat milk lattes, right, like the oat milk in the latte from Starbucks has this very, like, creamy sort of aftertaste. But the one I use at home, which is the same brand, by the way, um, it's like... There's like no milky taste. Like there's yeah. nothing. Um, it could be because at Starbucks they froth the milk. Mm. So the introduction of air and the heating up does make the milk. And it also matters how you do your oat milk. So do you drink it hot or cold? Hot. Yeah, I would think that because you don't have a frother, you will need to make your coffee cold and then after that add in the milk for the creamy taste to come out. Oh. Yeah, because you don't have... At Starbucks they have the frothing machine to bring the temperature of it up. So it matches. So, because oat milk is in the fridge, right? So then it would be mm-hmm. not really wise for you to make hot coffee and pour oat milk into it. Like, first of all, it can cause curdling. Uh, oh, okay. So mine hasn't curdled. Mine just tastes like water. Yeah. That's the thing with my oat milk. Yeah. My oat milk tastes like water. 
Um, I guess proportion is also very, very important when you're making a coffee. So I would recommend about one and a half teaspoons of those freeze-dried coffee bits. I'm I'm you use that if you're using oat milk. I'm guessing you're using freeze-dried coffee bits. Uh, we use powdered coffee. As in the ones that are in three in one, or no? It's just coffee. Yeah, it has to be very um rich. So that means it cannot be in a yeah, big mug. Most okay. of the time, it has to be in those small cups. So it has to be like an espresso uh... shot, and then you pour in the milk. So it cannot be like you cannot be like full coffee and then pour in a bit of oat milk. Uh-huh. So proportions are very important actually. Uh... Coffee. Oh. Yeah, I make coffee at home, which is why I know. Oh, okay, so for frothers, right? Do I need to buy like a frothing thingy? Uh, yeah, but that's also a bit con- time consuming and it requires like a certain skill because there's a certain temperature you need to bring it up to and certain seconds and stuff like that. And it really depends on the powder or the beans. So that makes it a very complicated process if you were going to go that long route. So just drink cold coffee or just black hot. Black one, you know. You know, I'm just gonna stick to Milo. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm a Milo. I've been drinking Milo every single day ever since I was a young child. Wow. Uh, I boycotted Milo. You what? I boycotted Milo. <laughs> Boycott. Um, Why? Tell us. Spill the tea. Um, I mean, I do drink on and of when I do crave for it but very much when I crave for it I try not to go for it um I I kind of also cycled my mom into not buying it for my household um because when I was interning in 2018 I worked a lot on palm oil research and um Nestle is very unsustainable um a lot of the things they do yeah so it's like you're drinking a byproduct of 10 orangutans dying oh okay um <laughs> Chris, your childhood drink. <laughs> How do I purge my body of all the Milo I've drank for 23 years? How? Oh my gosh, no, the four Okay, I'm switching to green tea. I have to finish all the remaining Milo and then I'm switching to green tea. Oh, listeners <laughs> out there. I'm not that extreme. It's just, I just made a conscious decision not to support Nestle because they were not sustainable. And it's also because like, even though they claim they are sustainable, when like, people ask them for their reports, they don't produce. And at one point, anything in 2018, they completely did not produce anything at all. Like, in terms of reports, because they are kind of obligated to produce a report. But they chose not to. And, and that was a big statement to the sustainability because mm. it's like, I don't care. You know? So, yeah, that moment was quite, yeah. So, indirectly, a lot of the forest peats you see in Indonesia that cause the haze in Singapore, it's because of the companies like Nestle. Yikes. Mm. Yeah, but it's, it's not really talked about. Lah. And, I mean, I did this research when I was in 2018. Um, I don't think regulation has really changed to become stricter. But, it is what it is. You can go for Ovaltine, though it tastes quite different. I tried Ovaltine <laughs> as a substitute and it didn't taste awesome. But I must say, Koi's Ovaltine drink is really amazing. Okay, I'm not a fan of like super chocolatey drinks. My love is super chocolatey. But then again, it's because as I've grown older, for some reason, chocolate is just too much for me. Like I just ate 
Cadbury's chocolate and it's too sweet. So I'm like oh. trying to drink water to get rid of the taste mm-hmm. in my mouth. By the way, I really enjoy the taste of like drinking water after eating chocolate. Like that taste in your mouth. I kind of dig it. I'm, okay, I'm tempted to eat chocolate now so that I can <laughs> taste how that feels. I like drinking water after I brush my teeth. Oh, wow. I'm that's, kidding. That's great. <laughs> I like drinking orange juice after I brush my teeth. <laughs> well, shall we get started on today's story? Because it's quite a long one. Okay, okay. Oh. I'm excited. It's actually really long. Like, I was so shocked when I found such a long story because... I'm not a person that normally reads the long stories, but this one had me interested. Um, Tell me. And I just want to shout out to our homeboy, Wikipedia, um, and all the users that have contributed to it because honestly, I was looking through so many resources and like Wikipedia has the best because it really summarizes everything nicely for all of us. So Wikipedia... Yeah, it was the same for my... A big favor. Yeah, it was the same for my last week, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, Wikipedia. Well, okay, so I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this um, story before, um, but it's about the two box killers. Have you guys ever heard of this too? Two, two box. what? Two box. Two, two box. box? Yeah, two box. Two box. No? no. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Nope, not familiar. So, yeah, they are... Um, Serial killers, known as the two box killers. So, um, serial killers because they work as a pair. So it's two men, obvious. Okay, let's cancel that out. It's two men. <laughs> I'm not gonna say obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. So, uh, both of them were American serial killers and rapists who kidnapped raped and tortured five teenage girls in Southern California over a period of five months in 1979. Mm. So, before I get started on all the gruesome elements and the crime that they did, I think it's fair to give a little background on both of them um, and how both of them actually met in their life because that's a very interesting part. So, a little bit about Lawrence Bittaker. He was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on September 27, 1940 as a child of... as an unwanted child of a couple who did not want to have children. So, Mm. eventually, he was, you know, placed in an orphanage by his mom and then adopted by Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker, which is why he takes in the surname Bittaker. So, Mm. um, his adoptive father actually worked in the aviation industry. So, he moved around the US a lot throughout his childhood. So, at the age of 12, he actually obtained his first minor criminal record for shoplifting. Um, And repeatedly over the years, he continued with petty theft um, and just a lot of theft-related offences throughout the different um, states that he'd been moving to. And he actually kind of pinpointed these theft-related offences to his attempts to compensate for the lack of love that he received from his parents. The adoptive parents. Yeah, the adoptive parents. So, even though he's reported mm. to have an IQ of 138, which is pretty decent, it's pretty high, mm-hmm. mm. um, he actually considered school to be actually a very tedious experience and he dropped out um, of high school in 1957. So, that was when he was 17. Yeah, mm-hmm. so... Mm-hmm. 
within a year of dropping out, he had been arrested for car theft, a hit and run, and, a, and evading arrest for the hit and run. So as such, he was imprisoned at the California Youth Authority where he remained until he was 18 years old. So upon his release, he actually realised that his adoptive parents had actually disowned him and relocated to another state. Mm. So he never saw his adoptive parents again. Um, okay, like what's the point of adopting him then if they well, I didn't guess, like show him love? I guess they did, but it's just not the kind of love that he was looking for. And when when they kind of relocated, it was more of like a, I don't know who this child is anymore kind of like situation. Yeah, so they were embarrassed of him, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's hard. Oh, yeah. Yikes. Well, for the other guy, Roy Norris, he is eight years... Eight years <laughs> younger than Lawrence. I had to do math, guys. I had to do the math in my head. So, he was eight years younger. So, Roy Lewis... Roy Lewis Norris was born in Colorado on February 5, 1948. So, Norris was actually conceived out of wedlock and his parents married actually to avoid the social stigma uh, surrounding illegitimate birth at that time. So, nineteen fifty. Oh, the scandal. Indeed. The scandal. Indeed, indeed. So, his father actually worked in a scrapyard and his mom was a drug-addicted housewife. So he occasionally lived his parents throughout his childhood and adolescence, but was actually repeatedly placed in the care of foster families throughout the state of Colorado. So his childhood's recollections, um, obviously it wasn't very pleasant, um, and mm-hmm. he felt like he was often neglected by many of the foster families that he was living in, um, frequently mm-hmm. being denied um, basic rights, I would say, like sufficient food or clothing. And he even claimed that he had been sexually abused when in the care of a Hispanic family, which he then later shared that caused his prejudice towards Hispanic people um, Well, due to this neglect and abuse that he he had when he entered this particular family. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the system system is actually very, very, very rough. Indeed. Yeah. So, while living with his birth parents at the age of 16, Norris actually visited the home of a female relative who was in her early 20s and actually spoke to her in a sexually suggestive manner. She ordered him to leave and informed Norris's father who threatened to subject him to a beating. So Norris subsequently stole his father's car and drove into the Rocky Mountains where he attempted to commit suicide by injecting pure air into an artery in his arm. Oh no, don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, that is really just. Oh, oh I was thinking about it. I was just like, I have never no. thought of this. Like, like no. yeah. So. Is it the same thing as, like, you know, people say if you want to kill someone covertly, like, like pump air between your toes or something? Like, inject air between your toes? FBI is listening. We're not not trying to kill anyone. Yeah, just the SBF is it Is it the same thing? <laughs> I don't know. I never heard of that in between the toe thing. Yeah, I've I've never heard of that either. I I've only heard of the in between the toes. Like you you inject air and then they they die or something. I don't know. I don't much know. Much I, I think it's from a K drama, Chris. <laughs> I don't think no. I most certainly did not see it from a K drama. Okay. 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 Never mind. <laughs> okay, yeah, but 
after his attempt, he was later apprehended as a runaway and was returned to live to, with his parents. And um, upon his return home, Norris's parents actually informed him that he and his younger sister were unwanted children and that they intended to divorce when they both reached adolescence. What the even? What the hell? When I read that, I was like, what? Which parent kind of tells their child that? You, you, you just returned home from like an incredibly traumatic incident and your parents were parents are just like yeah um we never actually wanted you and we want to get rid of you once you become like adults mm-hmm, <laughs> what the heck it's quite annoying like if yeah. you're not up for the responsibility you know yeah exactly yeah. well but a year later after he jumped out of school and joined he joined the united states navy um and he was actually it- to Vietnam in 1969, even though he didn't really uh, engage in active combat. But yeah, he was um, honorably discharged from the Navy after one tour of duty. So so that's a bit of a background. So now, I'll introduce to you guys their offences that they have done. And this is the interesting part because their offences are actually very different. But what, bro- what is important about offences is that they brought these two men together Love at first time. <laughs> so for Bitaker, um, he had already from young, like like I said before, um, he was actually um he stole a vehicle and he continued mm-hmm. to to steal vehicles and he was also released. Um, he, he was actually sentenced to prison, and even after his release from prison, he went to rob. Like mm-hmm. yeah, and after his robbery, he was sentenced to fifteen years imprisonment. Um, and yeah, and in that process, he was actually diagnosed by his psychiatrist as highly manipulative. So after already finishing his um sentence, um, he was again imprisoned for parole. Parole is it parole? Mm. Violating his parole. Yeah, he was imprisoned for violating his parole. Um, and then after that, he went through further examinations who then they classified him as a borderline psychopath, a highly manipulative individual, unable to acknowledge the consequences of his actions. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. So a month after his So he was diagnosed with psychopathy, not sociopathy. Yeah, psychopathy, yes. Ooh, interesting. So after a month of his parole in July 1967, he was then arrested and convicted of theft and leaving the scene of an accident. He was sentenced to five years but released in April 1970. In March 1971, he was then again arrested for burglary, and due to the repeated parole violations, he was sentenced to six months to 15 years of imprisonment. Three years later, he was released again from prison. Okay, so my, my main issue with this dude, right, is he's had such a long career doing committing crimes, but he sucks at it. Yeah. He keeps getting caught. I feel like maybe he likes it. What the it. hell? He likes it, maybe. But yes. Yeah, maybe, maybe he's a masochist, like he enjoys getting yeah. caught. So, he's king. Anyway, after he got released, <laughs> in 1974, he was actually arrested for assault with an attempt to commit murder. After he stabbed a supermarket employee who had accused him of stealing. Uh, so oh my the gosh, supermarket employee had observed Bitaker stealing a steak. A freaking steak! And had followed Bitaker outside and into the store's parking lot where he asked Bitaker whether he had forgotten to pay. And Bitaker responded by stabbing the pursuer oh in the God. chest. 
narrowly missing his heart. He's, he attempted to flee, but was quickly restrained. Yeah. Well, you could say that the, you could say that the stakes were high. And let's ignore this. Go on, Shen. <laughs> oh my god, can we just ignore that? Go on, Shen. Go on, Shen. <laughs> So yes, eventually, he was sent to the California's men colony in San Luis Obispo. So that is Bittaker's story. So now, to Norris. So, in November 1969, Norris was actually arrested for his first known sexual offence. He was charged with both rape and assault with an attempt to commit rape. So, what he had done was that he attempted to force his way into the car of a lone woman. And then, three months later, in February 1970, he actually attempted to deceive a lone woman into allowing him to enter her home. When the woman refused, he attempted to break into her house. The fo- woman phoned the police who arrested Norris before he had the opportunity to cause the woman any harm. Mm. So, less than three months after the first offence, he was Norris was actually diagnosed by military psychologists with severe... I don't know how to pronounce this word. Can Chris help me with this? S-C-H-I-Z-O-I-D Personality Schizophrenia Yes Okay Schizophrenia Okay when you say schizoid It sounds just a bit weird Schizoid Yes but that you, I think you can cut that out for me Chris Thank you I love you so much Okay <laughs> You uh, know it's not getting cut out right <laughs> So Um he was given an administrative charge, discharge from the Navy under terms labelled as psychological problems. So, in May 1970, Norris, who was actually on bail for his latest offence, which is like the attempted rape, actually attacked a female student who had, he, he had been stalking on the grounds of the San Diego State University campus. So, he actually mm. struck her on the back of her head with a rock until she slumped to her knees before he repeatedly beat her against the sidewalk. Oh as he God. knelt on her lower back. Yeah, right? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, he was charged with assault with a deadly weapon and committed to a total of five years imprisonment um, at the Atas Cadero State Hospital where he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. Didn't know there was such a term, but, you know, you learn something new every day. So, yeah. So, after that, he was released in 1975. Um and declared by doctors as an individual who had no further danger to others. <laughs> or so you thought. So, <laughs> three months after his release, he actually approached a 27-year-old woman walking home from a beach um, and offered her a ride on his motorcycle. When she declined, he parked his motorcycle and grabbed the woman's scarf, twisting it around her neck before informing her he, ad- that he intended to rape her and dragging her into nearby bushes. Oh my god. So, praying for her life, the woman did not resist the rape. So, although the rape was reported to the police, they were initially unable to find the perpetrator. However, one month later, the victim observed Norris' motorcycle and noted the license number, which she immediately gave to police. So, Norris was then arrested for rape and one year later was tried and convicted for this and also sent to the California men's colony. Uh, so, while there, Norris met and befriended Bittaker. And that's the love story begins. Mm-hmm. So, they then became loosely acquainted in 1977, which is one year after Norris had actually arrived um, at California's Man County. And, you know, Bittaker's initial impression of Norris was that he was actually a very savvy individual who was, you know, just very macho. 
you know, um, someone mm. that probably uh, does drugs and stuff like that. Yeah, and according to Norris, Bittaker actually had saved Norris from being attacked by fellow inmates on by at least two occasions. So, I mean, mm. that's nice. Yeah. And um, by 1978, this pair actually became close acquaintances and they actually shared a common interest. They discovered that they shared a common interest in sexual violence and misogyny. Oh my god. <laughs> and Norris wow. actually divulged... I wonder how that conversation went. Yeah, and Norris actually divulged to Bideka that the biggest stimulation for him was to see frightened young women. Adding to this, giving this reason as, you know, his primary reason for being a sexual offender. What even? Oh my god. But yeah, so Bittaker was not known to have committed any sexual offence prior to meeting Norris. His was really tough, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. But he, he, he divulged to Norris that if he ever raped a woman, he would kill her so as not to leave a witness to the crime. So when alone in prison, the both of them actually regularly discussed plans to assault and murder teenage girls once they were freed. Their shared fantasy actually evolved into an elaborate plan to murder one girl of each teenage year from 13 through 19. What the hell? What the So the pair actually about to become reacquainted once they were released. Yes. So so after he was re- Bittaker was released first, he actually went to Los Angeles and worked as a skilled machinist and he earned about $1,000 a week. But even though he was known to be a loner, he actually became associated with several people in the neighborhood. So he actually earned the reputation of being a generous and helpful individual. Um, and he also oh, occasionally God. donated money to the Salvation Army. So it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's always the people who seem like they're very, very good people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are you so, hiding, dude? Yeah. So three months after Bittaker was released, uh, on January 15, 1979, Norris was released and moved into his mother's home in Brindodo Beach. He soon found employment mm-hmm. as an electrician. Electrician. So shortly after he was released, he actually received a letter from Bittaker. And in late February the pair decided to meet at a hotel and rekindled their plan to kidnap and rape girls. So, in order to for the pair to successfully abduct teenage girls, they, Bittaker actually decided that they would need a van compared to a car. It's much bigger, right? Much more space. Mm-hmm. So, with financial uh, assistance from Norris, they actually bought a cargo van. Yeah, so the vehicle was windowless on the sides and had large passenger slides side sliding door you know those kind of events that you can slide the door and there's no mm, yeah. it was that kind of car um yeah so that one was um they nicknamed this van murder mac <laughs> murder mac what the yeah so so now comes the more gruesome part so from uh, February mm. to June 1979, Bittaker and Norris actually picked up over 20 female hitchhikers. The pair did not actually assault these girls in any manner. These practice runs were merely a way for them to develop resources to lure girls into the van voluntarily and of discovering secluded locations. So in late April, the so pair... So they picked up these girls and let them go, is it? Yeah, it was just a test run for them. 
okay, and not nobody reported strange guys. No, between... that's the point because they were really just doing these hitchhikers a favor, really just letting them hitchhike. But oh, so they were actually yeah, but dropping them off. They wanted oh, okay. to learn and see how was the best method to make them feel safe in the van, so that yeah. when they were going to rape someone, the girl wouldn't have known. So you know, these twenty girls yeah. proved. It's easy for them to put up with these disguise. And on the same time, bringing them mm. to different locations allowed them to know which is the most secluded place to conduct the rape. So in late wow. April, the pair actually discovered a secluded fire road uh, located in San Gabriel Mountains. Yeah, so Biteka actually broke the lock gate to this fire road with a crowbar uh, and replaced the lock with one that he owned. So that became wow. the site of yeah, their rape. Um... Uh, yeah, it's a bit sad, but okay, let's get into the first victim. So the first victim was actually 16-year-old Lucinda Lin, um, um, and she was killed on June 4th, 24th, 1979. She was last seen living a Presbyterian church um, at, at Redodo Beach, and um, apparently... Um, at approximately like 8pm, he actually, Norris actually spotted this girl walking down the street and remarked to Bitaker, there's a cute little blonde. And wow. after unsuccessfully attempting to entice her into their van with alternative offers of marijuana and a lift home, Bitaker wow. and Norris actually drove further ahead and parked alongside a driveway. Norris then exited the vehicle, opened the passenger sliding door, leaned into the van with his head and shoulders obscured from the view behind the door. So when the girl actually passed the van, Norris exchanged a few words with her before dragging her into the van and closing the door. So all that hitchhiking practice was all for nothing because he, he ended up just dragging her in. For the first, yeah. So using the rules they would repeat in most of their subsequent murders, Biteka actually turned the radio to full volume as Norris bound the victim's arms and legs and gagged her with duct tape as Biteka oh, drove shit. her to the fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains where... In April, the pair actually switched the locks. So, despite initially screaming when she was abducted, she actually quickly regained her composure. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so she wasn't really very, very panicky. So, at the fire road, Norris first raped her after instructing Bitaker to go and take a walk and return in one hour. Upon returning to a van, Bitaker similarly raped the girl in Norris's absence. So upon the second occasion in which she was raped by Norris in Bitaker's absence, she actually asked him whether they intended to kill her, to which Norris replied, no. Um, in response, she actually requested to be allowed time to pray before she was killed, if that was Bitaker's and Norris' intention. Mm. Yeah, so um, there were different accounts from both Bitaker and Norris on how the girl actually died. But in any event, she actually did plead for one second to pray. Um, but, you know, before she 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 could actually get that minute, Norris actually attempted to manually strangle her. So, after approximately about 45 seconds, he became disturbed at the look in her eyes and ran to the front of the van vomiting. Bitaker then manually strangled her until she collapsed on the ground and began compulsing. He then twisted a wire coat hanger around her neck with pliers until her convulsions ceased. So, she was denied her request to pray before, you know, the both of them killed her. So, her body was wrapped in a plastic shower curtain and thrown over the steep canyon um, 
Yeah. So according to Norris, after Bitaker had thrown her over the canyon, Bitaker assured that animals would eat her up. So there wouldn't be any um evidence left. Evidence. Oh god. Like there is it's like not I mean, there'll still be remnants left. Exactly. Yeah. I guess it's because it's a very Ulu area also, you know? So they don't really expect. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the next victim. So two weeks after the first murder, Bideka and Norris actually encountered 18-year-old Andrew Joy Hall hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. Beautiful highway, by the way. Um, as the pair actually slowed down to offer her, her a lift, another vehicle actually pulled over and offered Hall exactly that, which she accepted. So Bideka and Norris actually followed the vehicle from a distance until Hall exited the vehicle in Rondodo Beach. How coincidental. This beach is cursed. Um... <laughs> On this occasion, Norris actually hit in the back of the van in order to dupe Hall into thinking Bitaker was alone. So inside the van, Bitaker offered Hall a cold drink from the cooler located in the rear of the van. So Norris actually pounced on her when she went to retrieve it, and after a fight, he managed to subdue Hall by twisting her arm behind her back, causing her to scream in pain. Norris then gagged Hall with tape and you know bound her wrists and ankles, which is a very signature thing that both of them did. So once again, mm. they drove to St. Gabriel's Mountain. Um, at this time, in this location, she was raped twice by Pitaka and once by Norris, which is the reverse of the girl before. So while Pitaka was actually raping her for the second time, Norris saw a vehicle headlights approaching. So Pitaka actually claps his hand over um, Hall's mouth and dragged her into the nearby bushes as Norris drove in an unsuccessful search for the vehicle he thought he had seen. So, they didn't actually see the vehicle, just the headlights. So, when, you know, Bitaker was actually continuing to rape, Norris went to see if the vehicle was nearby. So, Bitaker actually brought her into the bushes. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, after he came back, they drove into a location further into the San Gabriel Mountains. And Bitaker actually forced Hall to walk uphill naked alongside the road. And then asked her to perform oral sex on him before ordering her to pose for several Polaroid pictures. Man, really. Man. Yeah. So, it's... <sighs> so they then drove to a third location where Bitaker actually walked her up to a nearby hill and this time as Norris drove to a nearby store to purchase alcohol. Um, when Norris returned, Bitaker was alone and in position, possession of two further Polaroid taken, pictures that he had taken, both which depicted Hall's face in expressions Norris later described as the sh- being of sheer terror as she begged him for her life to be spared. So Bitaker informed Norris that he had told Hall he was going to kill her and challenged her to give as many reasons as she could come up with to why she should be allowed to live before trusting an ice pick through her ears into her brain. Oh, what the hell? Oh my god. Yep. He then turned her body over and thrust the ice pick into her other ear, stomping on it until the handle broke. Oh, Oh my god. Bitaker then strangled her before throwing her body off a cliff. (sighs) Wait, she wasn't wasn't afraid of the ice pick. (laughs) Hmm? He still need to strangle her after the ice pick. No, they didn't strangle, but they 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 threw. Oh, they did. Yeah, they did strangle her. I guess it's just assurance, you know. I think they they just took pleasure in torturing her. They really did. They really did. So, 
the next two victims were actually, you know, they were together. So on September 3rd, Bitaker and Norris actually observed two girls named Jackie Doris Gilliam and Jacqueline Leah Lamb sitting on a bus stop located close to Hermosa Beach. So Lamb and Gilliam had actually been hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway before Bitaker and Norris observed them as they were resting at a bus stop. So they were offered marijuana by Norris, which they actually accepted. So after entering the van, they actually both realised that Pitaka had actually steered the van off the Pacific Coast Highway and was driving in the direction mm. of the San Gabriel Mountains. When the girls protested, both Pitaka and Norris attempted to allay the girls' concerns with excuses, which did not deserve either of the girls. So Lem, uh, age 13, attempted to open the sliding door, whereupon Norris hit her on the back of the head with a bag filled with lead weights. Um, knocking her out unconscious briefly before overpowering 15-year-old Gilliam. So as he began to bind and gag Gilliam, Lamb regained consciousness and attempted again to feed the van, whereupon Norris twisted her arm behind her back and dragged her back into the van. As this struggle ensued, Bitaker, noting the girl's struggle was in full view of potential witnesses, stopped the van, punched Gilliam in the face, and assisted Norris in finishing binding and gagging the two girls. So, Jalen and Lem were driven to the St. Gabriel Mountains where they were held captive for almost two days, being bound and gagged between repeated instances of physical and sexual abuse. So, both men stepped in the van alongside their two hostages, with each alternatively acting as lookouts. On one occasion, Bitaker walked Lem onto a nearby hill and forced her to pose for photographic pictures before returning her to the van. Bittaker also asked Norris to take several Polaroid pictures of himself and Gillian, both nude and clothed. In the first of three instances in which Bittaker raped Gillian, he had also created a tape recording of himself raping her, forcing the girl to pretend she was his cousin. Oh god, it gets oh worse. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh-huh. so, the tape recording of Gilliam's rape was never found, but Bideka was known to have tortured Gilliam by stabbing her breast with an ice pick oh, and then God. using the pies to tear oh, off one part no. of the nipple. No! The hell no! What the heck? <sighs> <laughs> After almost two days of captivity, Lamp and Gilliam were murdered. Um... Yeah, so as Abidika's trial, Norris actually claimed that he had suggested that Gillian be quick, killed quickly as unlike Lamb, she had been largely cooperative throughout the period of their captivity. Um, but Abidika believed that, you know, they'll die anyway. So, yeah, Gillian was actually struck in each year with an oh ice God. pick and then strangled to death again. Yeah, so after Abidika had murdered Gillian, he forced Lamb out of the van and upon exiting the studying door, Bitaker actually shouted at her, you wanted to stay a virgin, now you can die a virgin, before Norris struck her upon the head with a sledgehammer. Yeah, so Bitaker then strangled Lem until he believed she had died. When Lem opened her eyes, Norris again bludgeoned her repeatedly as Bitaker oh, strangled God. her to death. Yeah. yeah, so then, you know, the body um, of Gilliam and Lem were overthrown into an embankment. Um, just over a cliff. So, mm. you know, those grassy hills areas, they were shown down one of those areas. Mm-hmm. So, that, that is our third and fourth victim. And this is now our last victim. And I actually chose this story because of the last victim. So, the last victim was actually adapted in, oh. on Halloween. 
Spoopy. <laughs> so, the last victim is actually 16 year old Shirley Lynette Ledford. And she was uh, adopted on October 31st, 1979. So, she was abducted as she stood outside a gas station and was looking to hitchhike home from a Halloween party in a suburb mm-hmm. of Los Angeles. Mm. Yeah. So investigators actually believe that she accepted the ride from Bitteka Norris because the girl actually re- recognized Bitteka as he was known to have frequented the restaurant in which she held a part-time oh. job as a waitress. Interesting. Yeah. So upon actually accepting the offer of a lift home and entering the van, uh, Ledford was actually offered marijuana by Norris, which she refused. So Bitteka drove the van down to a secluded street where Loris drew a knife, then bound and gagged Ledford with construction tape. Bitteka then traded places with Norris, who drive in an aimless manner for an excess of an hour, as Bitteka remained with Ledford in the back of the van. After removing the construction tape from the girl's mouth and legs, Bitteka commented Ledford, initially slapping and mocking her, then beating her with his fist as he repeatedly shouted for her to say something. Then as Ledford began screaming, shouting for her to scream louder. So, as Ledford continued screaming, Bitteka began asking her things like, what's the matter? What's the matter? Don't you like to scream? Yeah, so, as Ledford started crying, she also pleaded with Bitteka, saying, no, don't touch me. Um, and in response, Bitteka again ordered her to scream as loud as she had wished, and then began alternately striking her with a hammer, beating her breast with his fist and torturing her with pliers both between and throughout instances where he raped and sodomized her. So repeatedly, Ledford can be heard pleading for the abuse to cease and making statements such as, oh no, no, as sons of Piteka alternately extracting either the sledgehammer or the pliers on the toolbox can be heard on the tape recorder, which he had switched on after entering the rear of the van. Holy shit. Yeah, so the poor, shortly the after, poor officer that yeah. had to listen to those recordings. Exactly. So shortly after Norris switched places with Bitteka and he then switched on the tape recorder that Bitteka had used to record much of the time he had spent in the rear van with Ledford. So Norris first shouted for Ledford to go ahead and scream or I'll make you scream. Um in response, Ledford actually pleaded, I'll scream if you stop hitting me. Um and, you know, these are things that they caught from the recording. So, Norris then also reached for a sledgehammer as Ledford seeing him do this scream. Oh, no! And then, Norris struck Ledford once upon the left elbow. In response, she informed Norris he had broken her elbow before pleading, don't hit me again. In response, Norris again raised the sledgehammer as Ledford repeatedly screamed, no. Norris then proceeded to strike Ledford 25 consecutive times upon the elbow, same elbow of the sledgehammer before asking her, what are you sniveling about? As Ledford continuously screamed and wept. So after approximately two hours of captivity, Norris actually killed Ledford by strangling her with a wire coat hanger, which he tightened with pliers. So Ledford did not actually much, react much with the strangulation, although she died with her eyes open. Oh my god. Yeah. So Bitteka then opted to discard her body on a random lawn in order to view the reaction from the press. Sickos, honestly. So the pair she drove to a randomly selected house in Sunland and just discarded her body in a bit of ivy up on the front lawn. So her body was found by a jogger the following morning and an autopsy 
revealed that in addition to having been sexually violated, she had died of strangulation after receiving intense, extensive blunt force trauma to face, head, breast, and left elbow. Um, so she had multiple fractures. So her genitalia and rectum had been torn, caused in part by Pitaker having incited pliers oh in her body. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so so that was, yeah, that was the whole, um, these were the five victims. So after that, in November 1979, Norris actually became friends with this guy called uh, Joseph Jackson, um, who they actually met at also prison. Um, and Norris actually confided in this individual um, in the different murders that he had actually done. And obviously, um, Jackson actually consulted his attorney who advised him to inform the authorities. So he eventually informed the Los Angeles Police Department. So it was then after that um, sent to the Homosa Beach Police who actually went to investigate the different um, claims um, of murders, attempted abduction and rapes that he had confided in Jackson. So... Obviously, they went to to find and, you know, um, obviously, there was evidence left through the, you know, the the polaroid pictures, the, um, the polaroid pictures, the recordings, the videos, um, and also the bodies. Because, you know, there is, even though they believe that animals will eat them, that's, that's not the case. Yeah. So... It's it's so sad. I feel I feel so sad about it. But one very interesting thing was that actually in Norris's apartment, the police actually discovered a bracelet in Ledford's body um that he had actually taken from Ledford's body as a souvenir. So mm-hmm. Ledford was the last victim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the homes they also found like polaroid pictures of about five hundred teenage girls and young women. Um, most of which actually were taken in their Redondo Beach and Homosa oh. Beach house. Yeah, so most of these pictures actually were taken without the uh. consent. What's new? What's new happens <laughs> in twenty twenty? So, on November nineteen seventy nine, uh, Norris actually uh went to court for rape, and you know, um, initially he actually denied any involvement in the murders, rapes, or disappearances. However. When he confronted with evidence, he began to confess and he attempted to portray Pitaker as more culpable in the murders than himself. What bullshit? Men really are... <laughs> I can't... Uh, I can't even. But yes, so eventually, Norris actually pleaded guilty to four counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder, um, two counts of rape and one count of robbery. And, um, yeah, so Norris was actually um, sentenced to 45 years of life imprisonment with eligibility for parole from 2010. So, um, Viteka was actually arranged for 29 charges of kidnapping, rape, sodomy, and murder in addition to various charges of criminal conspiracy and possession of a firearm. So, he was charged with two counts of conspiracy to commit murder dating, um, from December 1979 um, and obviously also sent to jail um, and well 
they both went to jail and they both also died in jail. So, mm. so Lawrence Bittaker actually died December 13, 2019. And oh. Roy Lewis Norris actually died February 24, 2020. A few months oh after wow. Bittaker died. Super recent, yeah. So recent. So yeah, they died both in prison. Um, But their stories are horrifying. Like when I read it, I was just like, how can... And, and they they were known as the two-box killers because, as you can tell, for most of the things that they killed, mm-hmm. they, they acquired yeah. two-box. Oh my god. So... <laughs> no, but like, systems failed them when they were younger as well, you know? Like, one of them was in, like, the foster system. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but it's still not an excuse. It's not an yeah. excuse for what they did because, like, you can tell that they took great pleasure Definitely. in torturing these women and like taking advantage and controlling them wow mm-hmm. you know, it makes you really think about like how humans can be this terrible this vile right it's crazy because like you have some people that are like they, they, they're, like, so good people. Like, they give back to society. They try to enact good change, right? And then on the other spectrum, you have individuals or, like, people like this who, like, actively seek out mm. to torture others and to, like, you know, cause such great harm. And it's, like, mm. you, you think you hear stories like this as stories, but these things happen in real life and you can't even yeah. it's so hard to even like really get a good grasp on it even if you hear like 10 20 stories like this I mean it's kind of hard to explain like the actions on an individual level but you know I mean you talk about this, the system like the foster system yeah mm. I mean, a lot of, I guess, I think maybe statistically, a lot of people who go through the foster like, system would engage in like some some form yeah. of crime. But that, that's a failure on the system, right? Or Yeah, yeah like your early childhood really affects like, you know, your mm. life later on. Thanks for the story, Shannon. That was so sad. <laughs> You are welcome. Yeah, it really is. I feel like we've covered some pretty gruesome cases, but like this one is just... Mm. There's a lot of like gruesome stories, man. What about you, Chris? Yeah, (laughs) I want to hear your story. Alright, so... My story is mostly like... Law... Lore l-o-r-e about this particular thing like it doesn't really have like a personal experience kind of additional story to it because like i couldn't find one like i couldn't find any and like Mm. um most of the stories is in a foreign language that i do not speak so yeah so today my my story is going to be on the churro c-h-u-r-e-l and basically, this is a ghost mythological creature from India. See? It's a ghost. Oh. 
Am I part of the club now? No. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so I, I don't think we've actually covered any story from India. So I think this will be the first one. Yeah, I don't think we've covered any. Alright. Yeah, so yeah, I don't think the first one is pretty no, exciting. No. Um, also, like, one of the inspirations for me, like, to search for the story was a while back, I watched this movie called Bull Bull on Netflix, which is a great movie. I think it's pretty good. So if anyone out there wants to watch it, definitely watch it. It's pretty good. And so, um, basically, one of the characters in this film, Bulbul, is like this spirit. So, she's basically a churl. And the churl, mm. churl is basically a mythical creature that resembles a woman. And a churl is usually found in India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. So, colloquially, churl means witch in India and Pakistan. So... The churl can typically be found in trees, and I don't know about y'all, but tree spirits are extremely terrifying to me. Also, because my mom always says, like, <laughs> if you're going out at night, like, don't look up at the trees. And I don't know, that's always stuck with me, so I'm, like, kind of scared of tree spirits. So the churl is uh, described as being hideous in its natural form but can shapeshift into looking like a beautiful young woman. And what the churl basically does is <laughs> she'll lure young men and then suck up their life force, turning them into old men, or she would just, you know, like, kill them. The legend of the churl actually began in Persia as a way of describing female spirits who died with unfulfilled desires when they were alive. And depending on the place of origin, stories say that women who die during childbirth, during pregnancy, or through an unnatural means, like for example, like they were murdered, they become a churl. After which, the spirit takes the form of a girl mm. in white and oh. lures men into the mountains. And I don't know about y'all, but there's something very familiar about this churl. And basically, in... Southeast Asia, the churl is known as the Pontiana. Broom, just a mic drop mm. moment. Yeah, but I didn't wanna I didn't wanna include Pontiana stories because I think that we should do like a separate story solely on the Pontiana because mm-hmm. there's so much in the Pontiana. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much. Going back to the way a churl looks, um, and I'm sorry to all the churls out there, I don't mean to be rude, but this is what the internet says <laughs> about you. Like, I'm sure you're lovely in your own way. Uh, a churl... Do you want to meet <laughs> I don't want to meet one, but I also don't want to insult one. Um, okay, so, as I mentioned before, like, the churl's form is known to be hideous, right? So, the way it's hideous is because it has, like, saggy breasts, a black tongue, and thick, rough lips. And, like, oh some God. people say that a churl has no mouth at all. The churl also has a pot belly claws and scruffy hair that looks like pubes yeah <laughs> I'm so whoever wrote this hits women to be honest no it gets worse okay she has a face that looks like a pig with large fangs or sh- <laughs> a man wrote this story why is it always a woman I know okay we'll get into that later okay so, 
Um, yeah, so she, she also kind of looks like a pig with large fangs, or she could have like a human-like face with sharp tusks and wild, you know, wild pube-like hair. And she also has like a white front and a black back. But here's the thing, okay? So remember how I said that she can basically make herself look like a beautiful woman? So the identifying feature, right, if you mm-hmm. ever come across a churro and it looks like a regular human, is you look at her feet. Because her feet will be turned backwards. Yeah. And while doing research for this story, right, um, I actually came across this other Indian ghost called the Boot. B-H-O-O-T. And the Boot basically has, like, very similar characteristics to a churro. But in... um. Some places they believe that like when a man dies, he becomes a boot, and then when a woman dies, she becomes a churro. But the boot also has feet that are turned backwards, okay. and actually, it's believed that one of the reasons why the feet are turned backwards is because you know, as a spirit, it's this like evil presence, and the earth is sacred, and so that's why the feet are like backwards. Oh, and like okay. also boots, like they sort of like levitate off the ground because you know the earth is sacred, so they can't really touch the ground. Not sure about churros. Mm. Churros are most often seen around graveyards, cemeteries, tombs, abandoned battlefields, thresholds of houses, toilets, and um, male changing rooms. Yeah. Why? Because they go around places that are associated with death and filth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> also because, you know, churros go after men, essentially. Mm-hmm. If the churro had died due to abuse by family members, um, she'll return in the afterlife to avenge herself <laughs> by killing off the male members of the family, beginning with the youngest. Oh. What she'll do is she'll kill off all the men first, and then afterwards she'll go after like the remaining um family members. So the way the churro will kill them is she will drain the men of their blood until they are basically like shriveled up old men, like a prune basically. And once she's done with the men, then she'll move on to the other family members. And a person who encounters a churro can be afflicted with disease. And she also makes a call at night. So she has a sound. And if you answer her call at night, you basically end up dead. So if you hear a churro, get away. Um, mm. The churro has an is insatiable carnal appetite, which is why she seeks to possess every man that she meets. And she can also possess girls as they dance, causing them to go into like a trance-like state. And yeah, dance. as girls are dancing, she will like possess them. So, um, I don't know. <laughs> According to Persian legends, when travelers see the tracks of a churl, they would try to flee in the opposite direction. But remember I mentioned the churros feet are uh, backwards. Yeah. So basically oh, yeah. when they try to run in the opposite direction, they will run straight. Yeah, they'll run towards yeah, her. Towards. So like their big brain. Reminds me of the previous story with like, you know Oh yes, when yes, you yes. Hear her far away. Yes. Um she'll also single out unmarried teen boys, visit them at night and basically um woohoo with them. And she won't leave them yeah, she won't leave oh, no. them alone until and like see the thing is right, these boys they don't realize until like 
they start getting weaker and weaker and weaker until they eventually die. If men, literally, men. literally men. And as I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, she will basically lure men into like the mountains, the woods, and like trap them in her lab. And um, she would like suck their blood bit by bit, or or she'll feed on their semen. <laughs> Can I exit this r- right now? I am uncomfortable. Ma, pick me up. Okay, okay. But the the larger thing I wanted to mention about this churl is like, I guess you haven't realized, but there's this like very overarching like sexual theme associated with the churl. And like, she's not only demonized mm-hmm. as like a feminine ghost figure, but like her, her femininity, like, you know, as a woman, she's also sexualized and condemned a lot in this mythology, which is why, like, you see the churl do all these very, like, sexual, de- these deviant sexual acts. Like, she, you know, she sucks out the life force of men. Like, she feeds on their, you know, uh, she sleeps with them and weakens them. And it's just, like, attacking her and, like, her femininity. And, like, um, this is, like, a really good book mm-hmm. called The Monstrous Feminine by Barbara Creed and like yeah so Monstrous Feminine she basically Um, like looks at um like female characters in like movies and stuff but like she makes a good point about like the way like basically about monstrous female characters and the way they're portrayed and like basically that's what Mm. you see with the churro like she's basically a monstrous female character and, like, her femininity at its core is what is turned into, like, to be the most monstrous part of her. Like, not only is she, like, a monster, but mm-hmm. the stuff she does yeah, is yeah. also, like, monstrous. Which is why she's so terrifying. You know? It's because mm. her very existence mm. and what she lives to do, like, her ghostly living to do is to basically, like, harm men. Essentially. That's what makes <laughs> her super terrifying. Yeah. But thankfully, that there are ways of getting rid of a churl. And um, so, um, apparently, if you spot a churl, you have to quickly cover your eyes with your hands or your cloth. And then, like, I guess she'll leave you alone. <laughs> Me and <laughs> Literally. Ghost. But um, the best way, according to Wikipedia, is to actually prevent her from being created at all. So, this means um, taking care of pregnant women. Oh. And if, unfortunately, the pregnant woman passes... The churl's creation can still be prevented if priests are gathered and offerings are, you know, basically offered. And in some places in India, mm. the corpse is carried out through the side door so that if, you know, she were to return as a ghost, like, she wouldn't be able to enter the house because, like, she wasn't brought out through the front door. And mm. if the girl dies during childbirth or during her period, her corpse is anointed with five different products of a cow. And basically, a special scripture is recited. In hilly regions, the earth is carefully scraped and mustard is sown into the soil. And like basically, it's also sprinkled along the route taken by the corpse to the burial ground. And this is because, right, it's believed that the sweet smell of mustard blossoms will keep the spirit content in the realm of the dead. And also, the other reason is um, apparently when the spirit wakes up at night, and she sees the mustard blossom, she'll want to pick it up. 
And then she'll get so preoccupied by picking up all the mustard blossoms. By the time she realizes that she's been picking <laughs> mustard blossoms in the morning, so she wouldn't be able to return home. Um, so, oh my god! <laughs> like, can't imagine you're wow. a ghost and you're like, oh, time to go back and haunt my family. Oh look, mustard blossoms. <laughs> and then oh shit, it's morning already. Um, some say that a goat has to be sacrificed to get rid of her. Uh, there are also some. Mm, ah. And like sacrificial, sacrificing animals is like quite common to get rid of spirits. Um, there are also some burial techniques to prevent the creation of a churl. One way is to fill the grave with thorns and pile heavy stones on top of it to keep the spirit from coming out. Oh. And yeah, okay, and okay. the other, oh, okay. if the mother dies while pregnant. Um, you have to cut the baby out and then bury them together. Mm. In hilly regions, as I mentioned before, the corpse is anointed with like the five different parts of a cow and the scriptures recited. Then the coffin is actually burned and thrown into the river. Then another method is mm. to... Okay, let me try to demonstrate my fingers. Okay, is to basically nail the four fingers together. So you nail your um, index, middle ring, and your pinky finger together. And then basically tie... Okay, so, so mm-hmm. you do for the fingers and the toes, so you nail them together. And then you tie the thumbs and the big toes with iron rings and then ah, plant okay, mustard okay. in the soil. So as you're burying it. Um, the most evil mm. churls have their eyes sewn up with and their hands and legs are broken and then they are buried face down in their graves. So one of the stories I found was by this guy called Jim Corbett who's India's most famous wildlife hunter turned conservationist. So he actually spent his entire life in mm-hmm. this place called Kumaon and um, because he's like a wildlife hunter, conservationist or whatever, whatever, he's very familiar with the forest. And what happened was one evening when he was mm-hmm. having dinner with his sister, he actually heard this like strange cry in the middle of the night. So hearing this, he decided to step on the veranda and he noticed that the source of the sound came from a haldu tree. I have no idea what a haldu tree is. So immediately he took out his binoculars and he tried to get a better look at what was making the sound. And basically he saw this bird that was like no smaller than a golden eagle. But here's the thing. This man is very familiar with birds and like their cries and stuff like that, right? And he swears that he has never seen mm-hmm. a bird like that in his entire life. So it's not native to the region at all. Mm. And remember what I said, um, churros can shapeshift. So he heard the sound that sounded like yeah. the scream of a human in mortal agony. And it also came... and. Okay, so mm. he heard the sound again, right? But this time it wasn't from the bird. It came from this village that he was very sure was deserted. So basically, it was a churl. Oh, okay. Then he heard um, the cry of a churl again. This time was when he went to hunt for the Champawat man-eater, which I was like, what the hell is that? And it turns out it's a Bengal tiger. Bengal tigress that killed 436 people in Nepal and Kumaon. And um, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. I was like, what the heck? This is a real horror story here. 
But Corbett actually ended up killing the tiger. <laughs> which is, um, mm, okay. it made me feel sad. <laughs> I was like, no, don't kill the tiger. Anyway, um, while hunting the tiger, he actually reached a rest house that was close to the village. And this village was like, it was an area where a lot of the tiger's victims were. And basically, he spent the day with this person called a Tesseldar. Basically, it's a tax collector. And at night, they were supposed to go back to this area. And then the, the tax collector was basically like, okay, um, we're not going to take the safe route. Mm-hmm. We are going to take this particular route that is full of like leopards and tigers and stuff. So at that point, like, Corbett was like, bro, you want us to die or what? Like, why, why can't we just take like the regular like route back? And then the Tessitar literally said that there's a churl out there and he would rather die. It didn't like, he didn't say this, but I assume this is what he must have said at that time. But he's, he basically would rather die by tiger than by churl. Oh, wow. So that's the story of a churl. It's pretty interesting. And watch Bubble. It's a great movie. It is, it is. It really is very similar to the Ponty. But I think the Pontiana should have like a... I'm so scared to even say her name. Yeah. Like I'm not scared of... I'm not even... I know, I don't dare to say so. Churl, but I'm scared to say the P word in case like I actually invoke her or something. Yeah. Yeah, correct. You invite her. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, please rate us 5 stars on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review and follow us on Spotify. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon, and whatever podcast platform you listen to. And you can follow us on Instagram at HAU Podcast. Drop us a DM or send us stories if you like. You can also email us at hiddenamongus3 at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and see you guys next week. Bye! Bye! Look out for our special Halloween episode. That's right. <laughs> Already starting from today, to be honest. Ooh. Have a great week, Bye. guys. Stay safe. Bye. Bye.